At around 2 a.m. on December 20th, 1987, three young men, Raphael James, Eddie Vieira, and Mark Smith, held up a Burger King in Brooklyn, where they blindfolded and raped a female employee and forced a male employee to participate. They left with $3,000 in cash. Both survivors initially described three assailants. Two weeks later, on January 8th, Raphael James and Mark Smith were on their way to a party with Raphael's 16-year-old cousin, Mark Denny. When the two men stopped the car outside of another store that they intended to rob, Mark wanted no part of it. While they argued, police pulled up, searched the car, and found a gun. James and Smith were suspects in the December 20th incident, and Mark Denny became a suspect by association. Mark was bailed out of jail that night and ignored his cousin's request to raise bail money, so out of spite, Mark's cousin named him as an assailant as well. Even though the victims repeatedly said that there were only three assailants and had identified Vieira Smith and James, the detectives pressured the female victim with a suggestive lineup to change the number of assailants from three to four, and Mark Denny was ultimately convicted. Years later, Raphael James recanted, excluding Mark from the crime, but it took an investigation by the Brooklyn CRU to reveal the corrupt identification process in which the female survivor was re-victimized. Mark Denny was finally freed, exactly 30 years from the date of the crime. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. 
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom, and today I have a guest who's a really special guy, and he's special to me because I had the privilege of meeting him, actually having lunch with him two or three days after he was released from prison after 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. So without further ado, let me welcome and introduce my friend, Mark Denny. Mark, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, Jason Flom, for having me. So, Mark, this crime happened when you were just 16 years old. 16, right? And the crime itself is like something out of a out of a horror movie. But before we get into the whole situation and how you got wrapped up in it, Mark, tell us what was your life like growing up? Were you born and raised in Brooklyn? No, I was born in Guyana, South America. I was there all the way up until 7 years old. Then I migrated to America. My childhood experience in Guyana was very fun-filled, and that's pretty much how I grew up. My grandmother left to migrate to America. She made certain things happen, and I was able to be flown in, and I was so happy again. My grandmother was like my everything. When I first came to America, I was living in Flatbush section of Brooklyn. I was living with my grandmother, and after a while, my cousin, Raphael, he decided to come and live with her too. So it was me, him, living with my grandmother, just like we was in Guyana. And Raphael is a pivotal character in your story. And it becomes clear later that he was into some really bad stuff, dark stuff. But before all that, it seems like you had a pretty happy and safe childhood. And let's bear in mind, as we listen to the story, that this was the 1980s in Brooklyn, when both crime and police misconduct were out of control, right? And the crime in this case is, even by the standards of the day, is just brutal, disgusting, and really, really sad. We're talking about an incident that happened on December 20th, 1987, around 2 a.m. And what happened was two masked men forced their way into a Burger King that was about to close in Brooklyn, right? And two employees were there. One male and one female were closing up the shop. They, they These guys came in and they forced the male employee to undress and forced him into a storeroom. A third assailant entered the restaurant at some point. They had blindfolded and forced the 18-year-old female employee to take her clothes off as well. And then all three men raped her in the back room. It's horrible. The, the male employee also told police that the men forced him to sexually assault her as well. I'm sorry you have to hear this, but this is, these are the facts of the case. The three men fled with around $3,000 in cash receipts from the restaurant safe. I mean, even during this high crime era, this incident stood out. And you find out later that your cousin, Raphael James, along with his friends, Mark Smith and Eddie Fiera, that they actually did this to the girl at your local Burger King, who was a girl that you happen to have had a crush on, right? But for the time being, this incident is just more insanity in a neighborhood that's grown accustomed to insane things happening. So about two weeks passed by. It's January 8th, 1988. Tell us what happened that night. My cousin wanted to go to a certain party, but he wanted to hold my aunt's car. She wouldn't let him hold the car. So he kind of talked me into doing it under the impression that he'll let me come with him. So I went and borrowed my aunt's car, and they directed me to where the party was. It was supposed to be in Manhattan. Then we got in front of a store, and it was me, my cousin, and his friend. And his friend wanted us to pull over. 
And they started talking about it's too early to go to a party. They wanted to do a robbery real quick. And automatically, I became afraid for a lot of reasons. And the main reasons was I was a kid and I never really did anything dangerous. You know, I was resisting. We stood in the car arguing about it. But to make a long story short, nothing happened. No one decided to do anything because I was there. I don't know how long we was in front of the store, but I guess the people in the store probably seen us, got suspicious, called the cops. So the cops pulled up and they was waiting to see what happened. And as we was driving off, they pulled us over. And I was in the back seat. My cousin was in the front seat with his friends. And out of nowhere, a gun was tossed to me. So like you described, it was Raphael James driving and Mark Smith in the front passenger seat. And they, of course, were suspects in the December 20th robbery and rape in Brooklyn. You became a suspect as well, just because you happened to be in the car with them, right? But did you even know that they had been involved in this insane crime? No, I did not. Everything for me became aware that this is what they do on a regular, because that's how they was trying to convince me. It's easy. We did it before. So the whole thing of what my cousin was actually doing for a living, I became aware of all of it at that very moment. So he he was some kind of stick-up guy. This was like a regular thing for him. But you were just a kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You You all got locked up that night as a result of me being in the car with them. You know, I got bailed out that night, and he didn't. Him and his friend Mark Smith stayed there, and Mark Smith gave me a bunch of jewelry to bring home to pawn for him to help make bill money. And my cousin now, Raphael James, he wanted me to go to my grandmother's house and get some kind of weed he had stash and sell it. It was supposed to be like a pound and get him bill money. So now here I get bailed out with all this jewelry and these duty to go do stuff for people that just finished, almost got me killed and got me locked up and tricked me into going to a party that they claimed wasn't even no party. You know, so I was pissed off. And this is the energy I came out with. So when I went back to my friends the next day and I explained it to them, you know, they was all on my side. It was all against them. Oh, they almost got you locked up. You could have been in jail. Now you got to go to court. Now you're going to come out here and go sell drugs and jury for them. You know, it made me felt like, you know, they just made me felt like it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. And when you didn't do what your cousin and Mark Smith had told you to do, And your cousin found out about it. He was really pissed. And he eventually made a statement sending investigators in your direction. It stained him to such an extent that I guess he always wanted to get me back. Because in the statement, he said he just wanted to put me in jail so I could see what he was going through when he was in there. and And he needed my help. But I don't even see how, I don't even see the logic in that. I don't see that. So while both victims had reported three assailants. Right, three. And the other three guys, your cousin and his friends, Eddie Vieira and Mark Smith, had been identified from either photographic or live lineups. That should have been the end of it right there. Right. But with what your cousin had told detectives, it didn't stop right there. This is when the identification process got corrupted. It's now March of 1988. The detectives told the female victim who had maintained that there were only three assailants, right? Three. And she'd already identified the three, but she had been through an unbelievably traumatic experience. And remember, she was blindfolded for most of it. So the detectives told her that they had one of her attackers and that his name was Mark Denny. And they put your picture in a photo lineup and she still didn't pick you. But two days later, you're at your grandmother's house 
And these cops come and take you back to the precinct where they interrogate you and eventually put you in a live lineup. And she picks you, the person, remember, whose picture she saw but did not identify two days earlier. And now the number of assailants goes from three to four. Now, you were the only person who appeared in both the photo and live lineups. And we know that type of suggestive technique plays psychological tricks on anybody, right? If you see the same person over and over again, your brain will start to adjust. And people can be easily influenced by this type of manipulation. And this is not just me saying it. It's been proven over and over again in countless studies. So her account was altered to make room for four assailants. Yet the male employee only viewed the live lineup, and of course, he did not identify you. And he was the one who was not blindfolded, and he maintained that there were only three assailants. And of course, there was exactly zero physical evidence pointing to you because you weren't freaking there. But the other three guys had all left fingerprints and other evidence at the scene. I mean... I don't know what the hell these detectives thought they were doing, but it definitely wasn't in the interest of justice, especially not to you, a 16-year-old boy at the time. You know, they took me to the prison. They smacked me around, asking me questions over and over and over that I really didn't have any answer to. I was telling them I really didn't know nothing. And they smacked me around. They took me to a lineup room. They put me in there and claimed I got picked out. I didn't know what to do or what to say other than what I was already saying. I was really like an empty vessel at that moment that was just being done with whatever that authority felt was appropriate to try to resolve a nasty case. And that became my nightmare. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's Legal Access Program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide. The bill was like $500,000, something like that. And then they finally took me to Rikers Island. You know, I was scary because all the reputations in the neighborhood, you know, it was about people going to Rikers Island and coming out. All I really wanted to do was just tell anyone that would listen to my story and get them to help me out. But I had no inkling of how ugly and, and repulsed people are by the nature of sex offense in jail. So when I got there, the first level of abuse was the, from the guards. Because when you come in, they get your criminal record, so they know what you're coming in for. That crime is esteemed as one of the most disgusting in prison, sex offense period, by the civilians, by the criminals, even the dirt bags. You know, so me having that title automatically, it started off with abuse. You know, I started to intermingle. I felt that if people understood my situation, that they would take my side and, and help me out, but they didn't. You know, I just became a target. The guards beat me down one day on my way back from the mess hall. 
They beat me down to a point where you couldn't even recognize me. Friends that I had there, they didn't even know it was me walking through the hallway because my face was so battered. Jesus. I don't know. I don't know how people can behave this way. I mean, Rikers Island is a notorious place. It's no place for any human being, much less a kid like you in that situation. And you certainly didn't deserve any of this shit to happen to you. So how long, Mark, were you held in Rikers before the trial? I was in Rikers Island, I believe, for approximately one year. So Eddie Vieira and Mark Smith pled guilty and were sent to prison. But you and your cousin, Raphael James, went to trial together. And at that point, you still had no idea that he had made this statement, naming you as an assailant, a statement that, of course, he later recanted. So who represented you? Oh, man, I had this lawyer named Harry Dusenberry. He was a straight bozo, man. I mean, from the way he dressed, his jacket sleeves, his midway between his wrists and his elbows, his hair looking all crazy, his pants, his high waters. He just looked like a clown. Like a joke. That's ridiculous. That's like out of a movie or something. So, okay. So you're represented by this guy who can't even find clothes that fit, right? Much less figure out the law. And he was a public defender? No, he was actually a paid attorney. Like, I don't know where my parents got this guy from he didn't really communicate with me at all and the relationship was not good it came to a point where he was charged my family seven thousand dollars my grandmother had to work give the money to my mother to give to him so it came to a point where when the payment was supposed to be done he was claiming that he was still short two thousand dollars and if he didn't get it my case was gonna fall apart mark did he visit you in prison did he prepare for the case at all he never came to prison to visit me i would see him when i go to the courtroom in the back of the courtroom in the holding pens So at trial, your grandmother was called to the stand in your defense, and she testified that you were home with her on the night of the crime. But no one seemed to care about that. You know, it's so easy for them to disparage her as being willing to lie for her grandson. Then, of course, the female victim who had been pressured into changing her memory, right, of three assailants, changing it to four. She was called to identify you. But as we know, She was also blindfolded throughout most of this incident and repeatedly stated that she couldn't remember what happened. Meanwhile, the other victim in this case maintained still that there were only three assailants and did not identify you as one of those assailants. So for a fleeting moment, this kind of looked like it might have gone your way, which would have been the right way, of course. But then this statement from your own cousin and co-defendant, Raphael James, came to light and sealed your fate. My co-defendant, Raphael James, they say that he made a statement when he was questioned, and in his statement, they asked him who was all there. And he said, Eddie Vieira, he said, Mark Smith, and he said, and my cousin Mark. You know, this is my cousin. This is a blood relative. And we're talking about something as serious as a rape. So I guess even though there was all those indications that it wasn't me, I think it's because of the ugly and nasty nature of the case that made a lot of people just become blinded to the truth and act out in a manner that disregarded truth. Now, we know that he later recanted this statement and excluded you from the crime. But at this point, you were basically doomed. I mean, it arguably all comes down to him. Had he never told detectives that spiteful lie to begin with, there would have never been any motivation for them to obtain that corrupted ID or to basically coerce the victims to change the number of assailants from three to four. 
But of course, that's not how this went. I was really depressed at that whole thing. I was just waiting for it to be over, but I wasn't really listening. When the victim pointed at me and actually said that I raped her, that jolted me and it was heartbreaking to me. Because seeing the victim for the very first time up on the stand, the store that the crime took place in is a restaurant that as a kid, me and my female cousins would go in that store and play in the playground area. So I saw the person before, but I never said anything to the female in my life. But one of the things that I noticed was that she was very beautiful. She had a very, very bright aura to herself. And when I actually seen her for the first time in that courtroom up on that stand, that broke my heart because in my head, I was thinking to myself about my co-defendant, Raphael James, sitting right next to me. I was like, hold up. You know that I know that girl. So they used to tease me about being infatuated. Oh, man, I can't really explain it. It was like he just broke something in me. I started crying because someone that in my childhood timeline, whose paths that I crossed that I was infatuated with, ended up being the very source that's condemning me. And it's because of my cousin. That is a lot, man. That is heavy, right? This whole thing would be hard enough for anybody to process or, or deal with without all of those other factors mixed in. So there you are. I mean, you had no shot of getting justice in this scenario whatsoever. And the trial, of course, lasted only two days, right? Two days for man's life. So, Mark, the moment that the verdict was read, do you even remember what that was like? No, man, I cried. I broke down. I was trying to tell the judge for the very last time I wasn't there. I told her that my cousin lied on me. I learned everything about the case and everything as I was going through the process. I didn't even know he made a statement dragging me in. And it devastated me in the trial because I had to sit next to this person that throughout the whole trial up until that statement came out, he was acting all nice and like he was concerned and telling me, don't worry, I'm going to beat it and blah, 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 blah. And then when the statement come out, showing that he pulled me into it, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, that just adds another layer of horror to this whole scenario. So, okay, so you're convicted. You're taken away, sentenced to 19 to 57 years in prison. These numbers couldn't even have made any sense to you. It's much longer than you had been alive at this point in time, right? But we know that in these cases, when you come up for parole, if you don't admit guilt, the chance of you getting out on a crime like this is virtually nothing. So it's really effectively a life sentence that they gave you at this point in time, right? So what happens next? And how did you survive this entire ordeal? Which prisons were you in? And how did you find the strength to survive this impossible situation? You know, I was in just about all the maxes in New York State. And in spite of the harsh criticism and stigma that I had to carry for all those years, I will admit that there were prisons where I actually was able to find peace. There was prisoners, you know, who had great influence, who was actually able to put the brake on a lot of the fucked up shit I was going through in there because they gave me the benefit of doubt. I met people that encouraged me just based on hearing me speak. It was peaceful moments where I was able to tap into my intellectual abilities. I was able to get education. I got my GED in there. I got my barber certificate in there. Then I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement where no one can get to me in a cell by yourself. And I embraced those moments where to another person, solitary confinement may be held. To me, it was refuge. It was solace. It was peace. I've heard other people talk about that. Look, none of us who haven't been through it can imagine any of this, but 
Was there a lowest point while you were in prison where you actually, you know, were on the verge of giving up hope? There came a point where I was about to commit suicide. My mind went through all the things that life has to offer. I actually ruled myself out of the picture. What would happen if I was no longer here? Yeah, there would be a little bit of emotions. There'd be a little bit of this. There'd be a little bit of that. But just like all the people I knew, after a while, everything just passes on. So somehow I gathered all this into my head and said that, you know, it's a waste of time of me even hanging out because it seemed like I cursed God out. I ripped the Bible up. You know, I believe that it was no truth in no one because no one was accepting my truth. It was only making things harder for me. I never thought I was coming out because even though I completed my minimum and I went to parole, they wanted to know the truth. And my truth for them was a lie, so I was never getting out there. And then no matter what good behaviors I did in jail, those good behaviors was not getting me out either. It was like, which way should I go? Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little 
optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you appealed a conviction in 1997, but it's denied. You filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus seeking a new trial based in part on a statement from Raphael James that you weren't involved in the crime, but the petition is denied. Eventually, Eddie Vieira, Mark Smith, and your cousin Raphael James, they're all released on parole. But you aren't released because the state, the parole board, as usual, they wanted to hear you admit your guilt to this crime you didn't commit. They wanted to hear you basically grovel, and you wouldn't do it because you didn't do the crime. So, okay, tell me about how Nina Morrison and the Innocence Project got involved in your case, and what happened next. So I was going to Law Library and Research, and I got a bunch of organizations that responded to claims of innocence. And I wrote all of them. And a couple of them wrote me back, told me I was in another state. They really didn't have jurisdiction. It was jurisdictional issues, and... You know, they denied it. I believe it was in 2009. I got a letter from the Innocent Pride, Nina Morrison, telling me that they're going to help me. And I was in solitary confinement when I got that letter. That letter made me feel so good because it just pointed out all the different reasons why they believe I was in the right. So I was able to take that letter as a badge of honor and show it to people in there, security-wise and civilian-wise and inmate-wise, that even if you don't believe my own words, look, there's people who actually believe you know, those letters from her, that whole turning point right there was great to me. But then it just took so long. I didn't think I was going to come out anyway, because then she told me that they couldn't find the forensic evidence. That's what they was waiting for for years. And then when they told me that they couldn't find it, it was lost in some laboratory that was destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. I was crushed. I just started going in about how the facts was in the record is right there. What the hell is they looking for is right there. So Nina Morrison requests an investigation from the Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit, which they carried out. And the CRU concluded that the identification process was, well, it was just absolute nonsense, right? It had serious problems. Taking into account three months had passed between the crime and the lineup, that after being through a traumatic event like that, blindfolded, that the victim viewed the lineup after having seen your picture, which is obviously really suggestive. I mean, that could contaminate anybody's memory. And of course, all three of the actual culprits, your cousin, Eddie Vieira, and Mark Smith, all said that you had nothing to do with it. 
They put a lot of energy in and they came back with evidence that was consistent with my claim, with what my co-defendant Raffle James claimed. Eddie Vieira and Mark Smith both, according to the investigation, gave up statements that was thorough and exonerated me. Everyone decided to just tell the truth in the end. So all these things put together with all the different errors that already existed paved the way for me to be exonerated. So that brings us to December 20th, 2017, which is exactly 30 years after the initial horrendous crime took place. You're joined by Barry Sheck, Nina Morrison, and then also the people leading the CRU at that time, which was Mark Hale and Lisa Perlman. And Kings County District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, who was sitting in the front row, said that your wrongful conviction, and this is a direct quote, happened because little was known back then about memory retention and retrieval and their effect on eyewitness identification, end quote. The case was finally dismissed with the consent of prosecutors, along with a conviction for possession of contraband that occurred after you were incarcerated. So then there you were, December 20th, 2017, you're finally freed. Can you tell me about that day? Like, what the, what the hell was going through your mind? Prior to me coming out, I had to go from this prison to that prison. And interestingly, one of those trips led me back to Rikers Island where it all started. A thought occurred to me. The day that I left Rikers Island after I was convicted and depressed and thought my life was over, when I was going over that bridge to leave Rikers Island to go to upstate facility, I said to myself as that bus was going over bridge. I'm going to leave my spirit right here. And I don't know when, but someday I'll be back for you because I don't want you to go with me. And the interesting thing is that on the day that I was leaving to go to court to come home at that very moment, as the bus was on the bridge, I remembered those same words. And it was like, it was just this suspended waiting for me. I just felt wholesome at that very moment. Like I received what I left. I went to court. Everybody was there. You know, people had seen the past, family members, you know, loved ones. I was going through all kinds of emotions. I got up in front of court and I made a statement. I wish I was the hero to save that girl because on that day, you know, she really needed one. But I wasn't there and I couldn't help out. I am so afraid now about how easy a person could lie. And the more ugly the lies, the more people tend to believe is the truth. Sometimes I worry about the people in jail that didn't get a chance to prove their innocence and died. Because this whole new momentum of criminal justice reform is just not. When in history has it been that way? So therefore, a whole lot of injustice was always happening. People was going in there and dying and not coming out, man. I could have been one of those people, man. So, you know, it's scary how destructive... A lie could be, the truth is everything, man. I learned how to understand that and respect that. So you're released, but then you're immediately facing something else. You had been working towards full citizenship, but your conviction had put all that in jeopardy, right? Before I got exonerated, I was scheduled to be deported. My green card was revoked, and it was up to the parole board to release me into the hands of ICE. And from there, it was straight on a plane, straight back to Guyana. But... In the course of me regaining my exoneration and ultimately being innocent. And so now I'm going through the process of getting my naturalization. It's just a matter of me maintaining focus, keeping a good behavior. You know, and I believe citizenship is important to that because it'll put me in a better position to say and do a lot and maybe even enter into doors that I 
would otherwise not be able to. Well, I think this country owes you a hell of a lot more than just citizenship. And I'm so glad that the Immigration Justice Clinic was able to prevent your deportation, where Immigration and Customs Enforcement informed your lawyers that because all your criminal convictions were overturned, they wouldn't attempt to detain or deport you, and you were free to seek citizenship and remain here with your family. And you also have a book coming out soon. Is that right? The book is called The Awakening Process, A Self-Empowerment Journey. That's beautiful, Mark. And we'll put links to that, you know, where you can purchase the book and all that stuff in our bio. So now here we come to closing arguments, which is my favorite part of the show. And I just want to thank you, Mark, for coming here, getting on the mic and sharing your story. And so how this works is I'm going to turn my microphone off and I'm just going to kick back in my chair and just listen. So whatever you feel is left to say, the mic is yours. You know, throughout my entire experience, you know, looking back at it now from hindsight and, you know, taking into account all the dysfunctions that's going on in the world, it thrives and capitalizes and create, you know, livable conditions for other people to benefit from. So now the world is at a point where they need bad in order to benefit. I thought about this while I was in prison. No crime, no cops, no offices, no facility, all the different contracts that's connected to that. It's tons and tons of family that will become impoverished if they were to remove the element of crime. So capitalizing off of it, which is creating prisons, and don't get me wrong, I learned that also prisons are structured if a person want to change. They can change for the better. But the being that the justice system know that it needs these things in order to function properly, I think it's an abuse of that justice that the measure by which it treats the people who are caught up in these systems is just cruel and unusual. They're giving out sentences that's impossible for a human that only lives up to 75 years to complete. Triple life, 200 years, 300 years. It shows that the value that people has been totally lost and justice needs to become more sensitive to that. Because at the end of the day, if the justice system is there to correct and fix people and put them back in a position to function in a way that they like, then they shouldn't be so terminal. They shouldn't be so extreme. They shouldn't establish means on which this goal of correction becomes impossible. Bad is always going to be. But the extreme to which bad is punished, that right there is something that the justice system needs to correct. And the reason why I believe ultimately they're falling short because when it comes to the truth, they are not embracing that truth. And it trickles all the way down to the criminals. You know, so the issue is the truth. We have to learn how to overall embrace the significance and the importance of truth. Because if we ultimately lose that, man, then the people at the bottom is no different from the people at the top. And if that's the case, then I don't know what to say about that. Hopefully someone would hear. Hopefully someone would be sensitive enough to acknowledge the truth of these things and make the change that's necessary. That's my hope. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. 
Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.